Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, June 22nd, 2016, the Political Murders Australian Elections Edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham here in England. Joined as usual by my two co-hosts, Kristali Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow returned from her travels. Welcome back. Christale. Thank you very much. And Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How Good are you doing, Scott? Good afternoon, I am doing as well as can be expected. Our two topics this week. First, gun violence kills 49 patrons of a gay nightclub in Orlando and one MP in the UK. We ask when and how should we talk about the political motives of murderers. Second, Australia goes to the polls on July 2nd to elect a new parliament with a conservative government seeking another term. We pump our expatriate source on the co-hosting team for the inside scoop. In the early hours of June 12th, 49 people were killed in a one-man gun rampage at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, the largest such massacre in American history. It subsequently emerged that the shooter who died that night at the hands of armed police was an American-born Muslim of Afghan background with a history of mental disturbance, domestic violence, and conflicted sexuality. He also contacted the authorities during the attack to declare his loyalty to the Iraqi Syrian terrorist group ISIS and had previously been scrutinized by the FBI for possible association with extremism. The attacks led to wide-ranging debate in America on the often heated topics of immigration, Islam, terrorism, and gun ownership, in part fueled by a number of inflammatory statements by Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump, who blamed immigration for the attack and pledged to unilaterally bar Muslims from entering the country alongside another of, a number of other extreme statements that we can perhaps return to later, which had senior figures in his own party feeling more uncomfortable than his opponents. Flash forward four days to the UK and the town of Burstall, West Yorkshire. The serving Labour MP Joe Cox, a 41-year-old woman who had been in Parliament only since 2015, was shot and stabbed at a constituency surgery. All evidence suggests that her assassin, a 52-year-old British man, was motivated by hard-right white nationalist politics. In court, he declared his identity as death to traitors, freedom for Britain. Cox was a noted campaigner both on behalf of Syrian refugees and for Britons remaining in the European Union. A referendum on the latter is taking place this week, the day after we tape, in fact, and the murder was followed by some angry debate about the extent to which a fevered national mood on the topic of immigration and a discourse on the EU rife with misinformation and paranoid emotion contributed to the murder and whether some mainstream politicians were therefore complicit. Now, Scott, you and I have both been, been online this week on, on, on these topics. I wrote um, a piece about Trump's response to Orlando, arguing that it showed just how dangerous he is in many ways. You wrote a strong and very personal piece on the same website, The Conversation, uh, this week in response to Joe Cox's death, criticizing the tenor of the public debate that, that preceded it. Now that a week is past, what are your reflections on her death and on the toxic discourse that came before? Yeah, it, it, it's kind of strange having to get personal and, you know, try to be objective and you know, give this analysis from up top. But if I could sort of give you a bit of background. You know, we were sort of sifting through Orlando, and I was back doing media, and, and the real emphasis was, look, you know, folks, you're going to sit and call this guy an Islamic State member, and he wasn't an, an ISIS member. He wasn't connected with ISIS. This guy, very disturbed individual, very angry individual, uh, all sorts of things in the background, which led him to attack gay and lesbians in a nightclub. But it's like ISIS became this excuse 
both to try to explain him, but also to try to, to steer away from the fact, look, it's the availability of guns. Whatever the reasons why he specifically did this, this attack was so deadly because you can sit and get automatic weapons and then go off and turn them on someone else. And I'm sitting there. And then meantime, I'm, I'm talking a week ago to uh, a very good staff member who works with Joe Cox. And we're talking about her work and keeping it going because it requires funding in terms of helping refugees, dealing with the case for whether you set up protected zones inside Syria, trying to make sure that people have housing, have some type of basically decent prospects amongst this horrible civil war. And like less than an hour after I got off the phone, then the newsflash comes in that, that Joe had been shot. And you know, and you're sitting there hoping against hope that she survives and she didn't. And then it all comes through, not only about her death, but this person who, again, I suspect was in his own way deranged. But he wasn't deranged in the sense of, I'm Islamic State, I'm Muslim. He was deranged in the fact that when he shot her, he yells Britain first. He subsequently at the court appearance amplifies on that, which is death to traitors. The language his his that has corroded politics has now taken a life. And by that I mean, I, you know, I'm an immigrant and I'm, I'm sitting here in an election campaign where the European Union is an enemy. You know, Boris Johnson says, you know, it's the prototype. Hitler's Third Reich was the prototype for the EU. And then I'm sitting here watching a poster, you know, that Nigel Farage unveils where immigrants are the enemy. You know, that Britain's a breaking this point. Is, this is the, the breaking point. Breaking point. Just for those who didn't see it, this was on the same morning that Joe Cox yeah. was shot. Nigel Farage stood in front of this poster that was for their campaign. They had a very long line of, I think we've since established, Syrian or certainly not EU uh, yeah, uh, citizens. looking right. Uh, right, uh, in a Mostly very in, in a very long line waiting at some European yeah. border checkpoint or other, and uh, the obvious purpose was to conflate this imagery with Britain's borders and uh, the issue of the EU. We could go into the complexity behind that image, how it taps into the crisis that you know has come out of the Middle East and North African conflicts. But for Farage, it just was immigrants are the enemy, refugees are the enemy, and then by extension, and this has happened in the campaign. Some people have, have argued those who support immigration or support refugees. They might be the enemy because they're allowing all these people in. The first line that comes to me is is that the Leave campaign didn't put the gun or knife in in the hand of the attacker of Joe Cox. But the type of language they used could basically be used, right? Could just feed into this person's construction of the traitors who deserve to die. I wrote the piece subsequently which said this, but to put it then back into the wider context, especially since this will come out after we've had the vote and we're into a new phase already. Look, after this Brexit vote has been held, this country, I think, is going to have to come to grips or it better come to grips with the fact that you had a campaign for weeks, which rather than dealt rationally with really, really important questions, Britain's economic future, the relationship with Europe on the bread and butter political issues of integration, but also the question of the crisis in the Eurozone, the question of the, the the refugee and migrant crisis. You know, this country's going to have to deal with all that. But we we didn't get that in this campaign. Instead of dealing with those issues, in particular one side evaded all this. Let's not talk about the economic crime that Britain's going to suffer if it comes out the EU. Let's not talk about the realities where immigrants, at least immigrants from within the EU, actually are a net economic benefit to Britain. Let's not talk about the damage to Britain's relations with the rest of the world if it isolates itself. Instead, look over there. They're coming to invade you, right? 
because that type of language has consequences. It's not just look over there. Sorry to interrupt you, Scott. It's, yeah. it's, it's simultaneously, what disturbed me was that it was it is simultaneously look over there, the migrants are at our gates, and hark back to Great Britain, Great, Great Britain, yeah. Great Imperial Britain, actually. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is, you know, if we want to use the sweeping generation, there is this, it's not just a British thing. This is an English thing. Yeah. This is a little England mentality, which tries to pretend when it was big England and had the empire. And I'm sorry to see you, so, because I am proud to have been in this country for 30 years. This is where I've made my life. And to watch it just simply through a bit of misguided nostalgia and then just simply, you know, knee-jerk hatred and fear rip itself apart. So does that get back to Orlando? No. These are different countries here. America has its own evasion. It will not deal with the, the issue of guns. Hmm. We can talk about it will not deal with the issue of Trump's language. But for re- right now, at least for this moment, this country, which at least didn't have guns, which at least claimed it didn't have a culture of violence to the extent the United States does, now finds itself in this position where it is slipping towards a language of violence or a language that feeds violence, and that cannot do anyone any good. I agree with a lot of what you've said, but I do have a slightly different take. I made myself a little unpopular with it in some circles this week, uh, but I think it it bears articulating. Um, But I shall try and frame it quite carefully to make sure that I... That I, that I get it right. I mean, first of all, Orlando, which happened first and which I wrote about first before we knew what this uh, unfortunate British chapter was, was going to involve. And, I, you know, I thought, of course, those events were awful and a hate crime. And then Trump compounded their awfulness mm. with the awfulness of his response. Which, which was? Which, which was to say that immigration was the source of this threat fundamentally, uh, that Muslims are a sort of fifth column existing within the United States. They know who the extremists are. They need to turn them over to cooperate with us, in inverted commas, um, or else face consequences, so-called, that shutting down all immigration for the allegedly hundreds of thousands of unvetted migrants who are pouring in every year in Donald Trump's imagination to the United States from that part of the world is, is, is the way to solve this. And what that all stemmed from was a kind of very hazy collective responsibility attribution effectively to to all Muslims. Not even what you would tend to get within within the Republican right, which is that there is a hard core of conservative radical Muslims and they are a large threat and then violent extremists are one part of that. But actually he, Trump seemed to go go full tilt and, and sweep it across the whole the whole population. So that that's stipulated. Um, when we come to the to the British case, um, you know, on the same day we have at, at the shooting we have Nigel Farage in front of this awful poster, which, as many people have pointed out, you know, evokes some pretty ugly historical associations of racism in in the past. And I would want to say three things. First of all, I think there is a very ugly mood in this country right now, and there's been some very toxic. I will go for I will happily use that word discourse surrounding this referendum. The way people are talking to each other and about each other is is very heated and very unpleasant. And leave have certainly been responsible for more of that by some distance, I would think, than remain. Um, secondly, I think political murder as an action is so extreme that we need to be careful in reading too much into any instance of it and in reading too much into or attributing too much breadth uh, of cultural 
responsibility for it when it when it occurs or group responsibility for when it occurs i spent the first hour after i heard an mp had been killed in great fear and suspense that it would turn out to be a jihadist i did that for a reason because i knew that if it happened there would be if not full-scale donald trump like things things very like that being said uh, about yeah. uh, about Muslims, about those who tacitly, allegedly defend Islamic radicalism, about everyone who isn't spending every minute of every day cracking down with the most reactionary rhetoric possible uh, against those who, who, who are in any way associated with, uh, with the ideas imagined to be responsible with that action. And it still seems true to me right now that it very easily could have been someone from the other side of the political spectrum who got shot. If Nigel Farage had been shot by someone from elsewhere on the political spectrum or someone else on a totally different part of the political spectrum had been shot by someone from, from an angry uh, fringe uh, fra- fraction of the population, that would not seem to me an unimaginable thing to, to occur. And therefore, my third point is that it worries me a little when we take this one very extreme thing and build too strong an argument on the back of it to the effect that Nigel Farage and all the conservatives uh, who are involved in the Leave campaign and all the general discourse around Leave are responsible for it. There's a way to do it right, which is to say that if we are talking about each other in a heated, irresponsible, uncivil way from whatever angle we're coming at these issues, then maybe around the fringes that does give people who are unstable a nudge in the wrong direction. And therefore, we should all of us across the political spectrum be restrained in how we talk about each other. So people who are uh, race-baiting essentially on the leave side, I think that's problematic. On the other hand, people, you know, if you go on Facebook, people who are characterizing, you know, not Britain first, about whom it might well be true, but UKIP and maybe even the right of the Tory party as like literal Nazis. Uh, Like if we leave the EU, this will unleash the forces of a dystopian nationalist hell and who knows what the consequences are. I think it's not equivalent in the frequency with which it's happening. uh, And no one happens to have jumped off the back of it to do anything violent at the moment. But I do think Those of us who are concerned about overly sweeping group attribution of blame on the basis simply of loose rhetorical association uh, for acts of violence in cases like what happened in Orlando would do well to bear in mind the same kinds of principles that are going on here. Because I don't think that the Leave campaign is responsible for Joe Cox being shot any more than I think... Uh, Muslims who have socially conservative views are as a group responsible for what happened in Orlando because those views are far more widely held and in most cases far more clearly disassociated from any violence than than, than is true in these specific instances. So I, I would like it to be a teachable moment of sorts where perhaps if you could get people who would normally leap off the deep end about how all Muslims are responsible for something some crazy Muslim person does could catch sight of this moment and go, well, gee, this must be what it feels like to get blamed for something you have nothing to do with uh, because I want to advocate Brexit and now I'm suddenly being accused of stoking a toxic discourse that leads to, that leads to MPs being shot. I would prefer the lesson that we take not to be that turnabout is fair play and let's go swinging hard in both directions, but that maybe we could take care to, to be more civil to each other and rein in our impulse to sweepingly blame. I don't think we're that far apart, but I think there's an important distinction. It better damn well be a teachable moment.
and I'll tell you why. I mean, I've, I'm worried about Trump, and you know that, and I'm worried about the polarizing of American politics, which I've seen for a generation. But in a way, there's a safety net in American politics that um, even if Trump gets into office, heaven forbid, there are some checks and balances in the system where I think his rhetoric will be somewhat restrained by a Congress and by a Supreme Court doesn't want to go down that route. I'm not sure where the checks and balances are here because I think there's a really important distinction between the two cases that you draw, Adam. You know, in in the case of uh, Omar Mateen, the shooter in Orlando, the Islamic State took advantage of that to try to say, yeah, look, we got him to do it, et cetera. But the fact is, is that Omar Mateen was not as much motivated by the Islamic State operating inside the United States. He was motivated by, and quite rightly, you would argue this, probably a homophobia, which intersected with his own distorted beliefs, religious political beliefs. Mm-hmm. And certainly you and I have talked at great length about how you have to just keep on guard against that type of language and to react against it. Now, here's my worry about what happened here and why I was so shaken by it. Certainly we haven't had the, the scale of, of violence and death that they have in the U.S. You know, the last MP that was killed was Ian Gao by the IRA uh, more than a, a generation ago. I'm not saying Lever responsible for Joe Cox's death. What I'm saying is is that even before Joe was killed, we had a rhetoric here, which, and, and there have been examples of this in the past, Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech uh, you know, 50 years ago, various discourse thrown at immigrants over the decades. But now we have this taken up to a new level in the past few weeks, which is, oh, yeah, 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 immigrants have contributed to our society in the past. This is what leave folks will now say now. But, but now, now we have to, Right. And it was only one small step from there to where Farage was saying, and, you know, by God, he said this. You know, he said, they're going to come over and they're going to rape our women. And then it was just like a little small step further with Farage says, you know, if we don't do something about this, the people are going to take matters in their own hand and there may be violence. Now, that's instigation. And that was instigation not by a group which is beyond the bounds of British politics. That group, UK Independence Party and Farage, are now allied with a significant part of the Conservative Party. Now, by all means, there's a legitimate debate, and we discuss this here. We have to deal with what immigration brings. We have to deal with housing, education, and social issues. But do not mistake that for what is going on here, that this is something that goes beyond it, and it it rips at a big difference between the U.S. and Britain, that despite all of the efforts of Thatcher, there was a communal attempt. There's always been a communal attempt here. I live in a multicultural community. I'm proud to say I live in it. There was an idea of the communal. And what is happening over the past few weeks is just shredding that. So did they kill Joe Cox? No. But the type of language which is used reinforces that idea of us versus them, the good versus the bad, the enemy. Mm -hmm. And it is only a small step for someone to take advantage of that. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, And I wanted to underline two things. First is Scott's. Scott, one of Scott's earlier points and, and something that you spoke to kind of more tangentially, Adam, as well, is that there are very real fears that people have on both sides uh, that are being sparked by this campaign, right? And what we're going to need to deal with after is is the result of those fears that have been pressed during mm. this campaign. People are afraid of, of being overwhelmed, true or not, 
about immigration. People are afraid about rising economic inequality and for all of the arguments that are completely untrue from from the Leave campaign regarding the kind of economic benefits of of leave, people are feeling things that are that are very, very acute right now. So what do we do with that afterwards? And I say from the perspective of someone who lived through a very different referendum in 2004 uh, in Cyprus, which was a referendum on a peace process, which very similarly tore the Greek Cypriot community apart and took us a decade to recover from. And what that did was it was a vote on whether or not to accept a particular peace plan to reunify the island. And it created a very, very similar absolute terror of, of the decision that you're going to about to make uh, as a community, divisions within families, divisions within the total destruction of political party and reformulation of them um, violence against against people who were in favour of of accepting the plan and fear of speaking out uh, and and what it did was it brought out the worst in our society in Cyprus and it took us a year uh, a decade to be able to talk about that referendum process and to be able to come to a period where we can talk about peace again. And there's still a huge taboo. But what I, what I wanted to underline is that referendums can do very terrible things to societies. They give an opening for us to become the worst of ourselves. And it's linked to what people at popular levels are afraid of and, and politicians at the kind of elite level playing on this for political gain. So... One is what happens in these kind of processes and two is what happens, how do we recover from this afterwards? And you both have pointed out very, very rightly that we, this has become a really toxic, really corrosive de debate, if you call it a debate. And the question for me is how do we move towards a less harmed whole after this how do we how do we repair these these ruptures because we're still going to need to deal with immigration and we're still going to need to deal with what kind of country do we want England to be and how do we deal with economic inequality and how do we deal with this conception of self and identity we still have to do we have to do that really hard work the the days and months and years after the referendum and especially on the identity issue i think the stuff, I take your point, Adam, about extremism of, of kind of political language, but on both sides and the irresponsibility of it. Well, it's a sort of arms race in a way. Yeah. Once one side starts talking a certain way, the other side has to come back at them, right? Uh, well, I, I wonder about that. I mean, let me come in on both of you because I haven't talked about the Remain side of this as well. And that is, on the one hand, I think Remain... One of the problems that's been in this referendum process is Remain have been scared to death of really dealing with the immigration yeah. issue. Yeah. You know, Remain should have put out the case of both sides of it. There are benefits that come from immigration. There's also challenges we have to face, and they never took up that challenge. But I forget, can, can, I, can I just come in on that, though? Cause I, I hear that argument a lot, but I look at the people who are running these campaigns, and they're not stupid people. So I can only assume that they've, 
they've looked into what's going to get traction with the electorate and they've made an informed decision that the, the positive problem, argument for immigration just problem, doesn't sell. The problem is this. Work. The problem is the question of identity. Who do we, for me, who do we as a country want to be and how do we portray ourselves? And that's why we don't have one picture, and nor should we, but we, we don't have one picture of what it is that we want the future of England to look like. And that's where the divisions have deepened, become so mm. violent. And for me, that's why, the, that's why Cameron et al. are ignoring these are sidestepping these issues because they know that they cannot appeal to a unified group on this. They can't. Let me take a stab at this. I think there's two things that are in play here. Gary Young and The Guardian, I think, identified the first. A great column this week where he just simply said that for decades we've had a conservative party that have used immigration as a political or the fear of immigration as a political tool yeah. and that we've had a labor party which rather than taking that on have sort of cowered and then shrouded themselves in not just in Englishness. Yeah. So Tony Blair's Tony Blair's bulldog, right? Yeah. You know, here I am claiming, you know, what is Britain? Look, let's be real. England. So you go decades without taking this on. How are you gonna, then going to pick it up when it comes to the crunch? And that brings the second issue, which is great. Look, whenever you bring in large numbers of people, although a lot of them bring benefits to the community, you also then have – you do have dislocations. You have changes. You have questions about housing, education, transport. Before the waves of immigration took place for decades, we have not had sufficient investment in those services. So immigration mm. becomes like the scapegoat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, look at that. It's the immigrants. Mm. Now, no one's come to grips with it. If Remain went, right, if Remain have won by the time you hear this, <laughs> that's going to have to be addressed head on. You're mm. absolutely right on it. We're going to have to have an honest debate, or we should have an honest debate. Otherwise, we're going to be back into this cesspool of cliches that takes place. Mm. But... I come back to a broader point, which Cristela raised, which is what are you going to do, right? And I'm going to say something here. You know, let's, and mark this down, listeners. I want to put it out here because I've thought about it. If Remain wins, we've got to have the honest debate. If Brexit win, I'm out of here. I honestly think I'm out of here as soon as I can arrange it. Um, I don't think I want to be in a country which is at the point where it has turned so inward and where it has stigmatized the outsider to such a great degree to where being honest my identity is in between. I'm neither American anymore, British, not English. But I'm going to find a place that's more accommodating to who I am. That's probably walking away from the challenge. But I, Scott, though, I mean, let's let's open out and and uh, proceed the second bit a little bit, the second bit of this podcast. Where would you go? Because this is a trend. This inward-looking isolationist fear of outsider, fear of otherness is a trend. Where would you go back to the U.S.? No. Would you go to Australia? No, I wouldn't. Would you go to continental Europe? I'm would you go to? Con- okay. I, won't, I, won't name, I won't name the country specifically. Not to give you trouble, but I've, <laughs> you've actually you've actually got a literal tunnel because <laughs> there right now. So got, I won't tell you whether it's easy. Is it, is it like Dick Cheney? You're going to go to your undisclosed location uh, <laughs> for the moment, undisclosed, but within the EU. I'm going to go somewhere within the EU because, and in, in, you know, I, I'm a very strong Europhile anyway, and I still believe in the EU despite all the issues that it has. But here's the difference: I've got a United Kingdom and England which is turning inward. By the way, Scotland's going to look pretty damn good after this if we come out of Brexit as well. Heads off. to Edinburgh. Yeah. But, and then I've got an EU which for all its problems is like, all right, let's deal with this as a group of nations rather than anybody, everybody shoving off and running us back into that nightmare that has led us into conflicts of the past century. I know which place I'd rather be in to face the, uh, the current wave of problems. South coast of Spain. 
That sounded pretty damn good. It's pretty old school. Pretty old school as running away goes. Okay, uh, we will be back with you to to look over the ruins uh, in uh, in the near future on that one, listeners. And there are a number of commemoration events happening around the world, actually, um, and around the country. Uh, and one of the things that's picked up a lot of steam um, has been a GoFundMe site that her fam- friends and family set up um, a few days ago, just after she was killed, um, that where people can pledge donations in support of the three causes that she believed very much in. Now, that site has gathered tremendous steam. They expected to... Um, to uh, they hoped to get two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and they've so far received in excess of one point two million pounds, which I think shows how much support there is for the, for not just for the person, but also for the politics that she stood for. Uh, so if you um, if you are inclined, please go have a look at that site. Connor will put it up for you. Uh, put up the link. I think um, there are three very good causes for you to support. Go have a look at them and show your support. Okay, now we're going to do number of the week where we take a number tied to a new story and have some brief chatter on the results. So, who's going to go first, Scott? Two. Two. I wanted to do like something. Winston Churchill's fingers we, raising in the air. We'll raise the proper way, right? Although you can, I hope so. Actually, you can turn the two around the other way because I'm pointing at you, North Korea. <laughs> I wanted to do something which was way far away from the EU referendum, and I'm going to go to the other side of the world. So, like, the North Koreans is like, okay, everybody's talking EU referendum. They're talking Donald Trump. What are they going to do? It's like, oh, God, nobody's paying attention to us. We're going to fire some more missiles. So, uh, hours, uh, a few hours ago, they fired two missiles. One of them doesn't work. And then the second one, like, goes into the sea and smashes down. And it's like, oh, look. Now, there's did, an anticlimax. I did not because I did a bit of work with an Asian media outlet. And that's their lead story. It's like, okay, so North Korea succeeded. Like, oh, look, they fired this. And the Japanese prime minister gets on there and says, this is very disturbing. Uh, you, we are watching. This is destabilizing. And so, and it's like, here's what the Japanese prime minister should have said. He should have said, you know, instead of spending all that money to, like, throw a missile into the water, you could have used it on food and, like, some decent housing for your people. North Korea combining uh, existential threat with humorous aesthetics for 60 years now. I'm going to go with 100%, uh, which is the amount of credit Nigel Farage uh, is claiming uh, he deserves for forcing the government of the United Kingdom to... Uh, to have the referendum that we're going to be having tomorrow. And I don't know if I would go all the way to 100, but he's not wrong. Uh, but I'm not going to use this as a, a, a lever which to praise uh, Mr. Farage, if levers are things you can use to praise. I'm not sure. It is in met- this case. Actually, is that, is that metaphor that. still on road, Christala? I don't know. <laughs> but I think I said this when we talked before about the referendum, and I certainly believe it all the more now. I think the the original sin with all of this lies in David Cameron's calculation yeah. that faced with outriding UKIP candidates in a variety of Tory seats in the years before the last election and with his MPs getting antsy and being Eurosceptic, he got the idea in his head that he could settle this issue down um, Make it disappear for the last parliament. Uh, get all of his team on one united uh, on, on one united bench. Um, 
the in time for this one, out, in exchange eh? for having this referendum. And what has he what has he managed to achieve? Well, he's managed to achieve Nigel Farage on every television set. He's managed to achieve several of his own cabinet members unrecoverably at this point against him in the public square. Like I don't, people, Michael Gove announced uh, that he's not, he doesn't intend to, uh, to serve in the, or he, he's, he's announced that he'll be out of the cabinet uh, if, uh, even if we vote to remain, to which I think my, my friend Nick's uh, uh, Facebook comment was, I'm sure you will, Chief, uh, in the sense that I don't imagine that Michael Gove has much, uh, much basis to expect anything less, whether he wants to be or not. But you know, they're going to lose a lot of cabinet members over it. Uh, the party will remain divided. The issue will remain festering and bitter and more than it ever was uh, for the foreseeable future. And David Cameron, who will be gone by the end of the year, if they lose, will probably be gone uh, before the end of 2018 either way. And his his greatest achievement will be managing to just about put out a fire that he himself carelessly started uh, because he was trying to trim the brush and manage to set the whole bloody forest alight, it seems. Well, my number of the week... See, we, we started with the, the humorous two fingers to North Korea moved to um, Cameron's um, screw-ups, and if we weren't on, on camera, uh, I would use a stronger expletive. And I sadly am going to take us to less, well, more dire, less uh, conversational number of the week. My number of the week is 65.3 million. Uh, which is 65.3 million people who remain forcibly displaced from their homes by war and persecution, taking on my mantle of uh, idealist lefty, uh, which is which is where I sit in this pod. UNHCR released their annual report uh, on Monday saying that, in fact, there are 65.3 million people forcibly displaced. 41 million of those are still living within those, their countries. And we're talking about people who are about 22 million people who are not internally displaced but have crossed borders. And I wanted to bring this up because 86% of those people are in fact not on the borders of the EU, Nigel Farage, but instead they are on in, in bordering countries like Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan and Ethiopia. On July 2nd, Australians will be voting to elect a new government, something they do every three years, which seems a bit often to me, but they must like it. Uh, Voters will be deciding whether to re-elect a Liberal Party government. That's the Conservative Party in Australia. We've had this back and forth before, the the, the illiberal Liberal Party. Upside Uh, down over there, guys, upside down. Yeah, Antipodean or what? Uh, The Liberal Party government, led by veteran politician Malcolm Turnbull, who displaced his own party's Prime Minister, as is the Australian way, Tony Abbott in leadership coup year ago. The alternative is the Labour Party led by Bill Shorten. The two parties are apparently unexpectedly close in the opinion polls and predicting the result is being made harder by the relative success of a new party led by the, in my opinion, fantastically named Nick Xenophon, uh, which is looking strong in the Sydney area. Um, we're lucky enough to have a real live Australian uh, with us here in the studio. For her uh, scenes. Uh, yeah, uh, our very own drop bear, uh, Cristala. Australian politics look to my outside eye like a sort of weird blend of the UK and the US. There are these arguments about 
taxing and spending in public services and the quality of public services and investment in them that all look and sound quite quite British. And then there are some issues like climate change or LGBT rights where it suddenly goes full culture wars in some way that seems very American to me and that doesn't seem at all like what we what we have over here, at least in the mainstream. Um, so handing ourselves over to your uh, to, to your to your more attentive eye on this story what do you think is going to prove the key narrative of this election and who do you think is going to to prevail and if we could also get a, a status report on that one constituency <laughs> that we were doing week by week during number of the week earlier this year then that would be much appreciated because I for one have been on tenterhooks. So first the first thing to say is that yes Adam in fact uh, Australia is having what is called a double dissolution which is where uh, both the Senate and the House of Representatives has been dissolved and everyone um, is up for a re-election, uh, which does happen with increasing frequency in Australia. Um, my This is happening on the 2nd of July, which is a magnificent day, people, because it's also my birthday. Um, yes, And they laid all this on right Absolutely. You. Just for me. It's going to be a Green Party uh, single, single government revolution <laughs> in Australia. Um, happy birthday, me. Um, then the next day it could be someone awful's birthday and I'll change it all. This, but the thing is, yes, yes, Australia also has a habit of, uh, of um, major party insurrection and losing not only prime ministers but leaders of opposition to internal backstabbing. Right, like this is the fourth prime minister in about, what, five yeah, years? Yeah, something like that. Um, and so, and Australian politics has been in a crisis for a long time now. It's a crisis of career. It's a crisis of personality. It's a crisis of depth as well. And so to answer your question on the um, the West Australian seat, stay tuned. We'll find out about it um, uh, in due course. My vote would be that it that it goes back to the Liberal Illiberal Party, um, which is a coalition of Liberal and National um, um, parties. Um, in terms of who's going to win. And what the hell is going on in Australia? Um, there's been it's it's funny. There's been this really weird election campaign that's that's been run by the Liberal National Coalition, the governing coalition, and it's been essentially epitomised by this farcical ad that's uh, that was that is known in social media as the fake tradie ad. And I recommend you guys look this up if you haven't seen it. Fake tradie. Fake tradie. A tradie in Australian, I don't know if you have this. Uh, we do not. A tradie is a tradesperson okay. in Australia because we are also tremendously sexist. Uh, it's a tradesman. Um, and this guy speaks a little like this and uh, he says... Uh, so uh, we've got this election stuff going on in our country and, uh, you know, the, this Labour Party, they're talking about the, uh, the economy and really they're going to screw things up the way the uh, Labour Party always screws things up. And I say you vote Liberal. And the reason he says that we should vote Liberal is, um, and I have the quote, he says something like... Um, we should see it through and stick with the current mob for a while. So the the best argument that the Liberal Party can come up with in terms of its public-facing argumentation, and producer Connor has this uh, clip up for us, I really do think you should watch it, is that 
guys, we know everything has gone to shit in the country um, and we've got all this stuff going on, but just stay with the Liberal Party, this mob, for a while and mm. see it through. And the stuff that they're going to see through, the stuff they want us to see through, is the fact that Australia has not invested in technology or in, in a tremendous way in education or in any forward-looking kind of economy, economic structure for the last two decades. In fact, instead, it has pulled resources out of the ground and sold them privately to the highest bidder, China and India. This bubble has burst recently. Um, and oh, no. Yes. And so while Australia rode through the global economic crisis quite comfortably, uh, it's now its economy is retracting. And what's holding the economy together in Australia, more or less, is an inflated housing market. And so what the government has done is sold off the housing market and pro the property market to the highest bidder internationally and locally, and it's done something domestically called negative gearing, which is essentially you can buy your second, third, fourth, fifth property and offset the losses tax-wise, um, so as promoting investment for people who already have money. Now, what this has done has opened up a generational divide because people under, I don't know, 40 have tremendous trouble buying their first house because the market is falsely inflated and because, um, and as a result of that, they're priced completely out of the market. So they're generational renters. And there's this tension because the older generation and the governing generation is saying, well, you guys are, you know, lazy so-and-sos and you're sitting on your asses and you're not doing anything and you're spending your money and, you know, you're living well. And the younger generation is saying, hang on a second, the job market appears to be retracting. We can't afford to buy a house. And where are we in the global economy? What's going on? Education is costing us more and more and more and more. We're not quite sure what our place is in the world. So there's this tremendous, um, tremendous intergenerational tension that's happening that the, the Australian elections are kind of riding off now. So one of the things that's going to be a flashpoint issue in the elections coming up in July is, um, is, is the economy and who can sell the illusion of a strong Australian economy strongest. Mm. Um, and what sits underneath this is this kind of tension that people feel in the younger generations that they've been screwed out for a long time. And how do you fix this problem? And so the fake tradie is a response to this because the fake tradie uh, is saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm the normal guy. I'm the middle guy. I'm the guy who just wants to buy a second house so that I can be okay with my kids. Um, and and you should read some of the responses to it because it's hilarious. It sounds reminiscent of uh, during the Scottish independence referendum. They had this notorious advert with a woman sitting at her kitchen table representing the normal, yeah. uh, every, everyday average person. And whenever a group of highly paid elite advert constructors try and come up with someone played by an actor who yeah. is uh, the normal average person. It tends to come across... A little bit farcical. Uh, yeah. And the thing is, you never quite know, because I suppose the people it's aimed at and the people who are laughing at it are not usually the same groups of people, no. but it certainly no. usually appears no. really clunky and yeah. patronizing yeah. and awkward and, yeah. and weird. offensive if you yeah. were to think too long about it. If, it, yeah. if, you, like, if you felt like it was being aimed at you, you'd be horrified. Yeah. 
and the and and this this entirely harks to that and there is a large kind of working class australian group that votes consistently conservative for the idea that the liberal party will protect the liberal national coalition will protect the little gains that they have made over the course of their lives right so this mm. is a real thing the second thing that's that is maybe a flashpoint um maybe not so much is the idea of border security and this is where australia gets crazy um so we've said on this podcast before uh, that um, Australia's immigration detention policies are uh, a world of a dystopian world of their own, right? And Australians essentially, since the John Howard government in 2000 and around 2001, started pulling back refugee asylum-seeking boats. So what he started doing was towing them back into Indonesian waters. Um, quote unquote safely and essentially leaving them to drown and he did this I think four times uh, it created friction with the Indonesian government as you may imagine um, and it but you wouldn't be pleased would you no hello refugees uh, with a collapsing drowning people collapsing boats yeah. and th- thanks richer is... country that could more readily have dealt with this much but appreciated in addition so so Intergenerationally, governments have built on this fear that Australians have of not being able to control or police or patrol their borders and this weird construct that Australia is, that it's a former colonial settlement, which is why you get the British elements of of Mm. the debate, that is also now a multi-ethnic community um, of people. And so the whole border security insanity thing is has been built kind of over two generations of three generations of governments and it's taken on a life of its own. So now refugees and asylum seekers uh, are, are, are detained um, sometimes indefinitely and 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 asylum genuine asylum people who who are who are fleeing persecution um, also have been detained and continue to be detained indefinitely some of there are rapes there are uh, there's we discussed violence. the suicide uh, yes so this is indicative and it's become a growing thing for the kind of more liberal communities in australia so this is a, maybe a second flashpoint of the elections and the labor party has been complicit in this policy of detaining people um, but because the, they just don't think they could win an election if they set their face against it. They're absolutely. trying to like, basically make a, enough of a gesture in that direction that they can harvest enough votes from the centre-centre-right to get by. Yep, and so the Labour Party has become increasingly, over the last two decades, more and more centre-centre-right. But what's interesting to look at in this election is the growth of the Green Party, which has taken a much stronger approach to this. Um, it has 10 seats, or it had 10 seats in the Senate and one in the House of Representatives. So it's been a growing force and it's really oriented itself around this issue, the tremendous racism that exists and the tensions of this multi-ethnic construct that is Australia um, and saying that there is a kinder way of living in addition to adhering to international protocols on refugees. But it also orients around the environment. And this is the third flashpoint of the elections, I think. So the Great Barrier Reef um, 
has been subject to significant coral bleaching and there were there were results earlier this year of scientific surveys saying that 90 something percent of the Great Barrier Reef which is Australia's largest tourism kind of attraction and a national a world heritage um, site uh, is just being destroyed predominantly by global warming, but also accelerated by the fact that that uh, there's mining dumping happening around that area. So the so the Greens have kind of harnessed this growing discontent about the destruction of kind of um, of, of cultural heritage in Australia, but that also kind of presses against the Australian need or perceived need to continue the mining industry. So there's this real tension between the protection of a shrinking mining industry and the protection of an environment that's collapsing because of because of the implications of global warming. So and the fourth thing I guess that you mentioned Adam is the um whole marriage equality Right, because I, I don't know if it's just um, the people I happen to know who live in Australia yeah. who are unusually focused on uh, social issues, I guess, in the in the American sense of the term. But it does seem like there is a real culture war, yeah. um, or at least the conservatives in Australian politics seem to take and vocally and very openly take positions on issues uh, uh, like homosexuality uh, of a kind that I think are very familiar to students of American politics, but that your feet wouldn't touch the ground if you said that kind of stuff in in, in most parts of UK politics, I think. So it seems seems like a, a... a very different place in the way those issues are playing out. Whenever I come back to um, read about Australian politics or go back to Australia, um, I feel this increasing despair about how open our our homophobia is, our racism is, our sexism is. And there's something about um, Anglo-Saxon Australian culture and maybe extending it beyond that, that there's a this, this kind of um, bigotry... You wear it with pride, you know, and and that culture hasn't shifted yet. And they're mm. real. And some of these people seem to be quite like senior and high functioning oh, politicians absolutely. who are absolutely. throwing stuff that you would expect down the pub on a bad night. Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, a, a closer, I guess, cultural commentator might be able to explain why, but I find it. Mm. Well, let me. Uh, I'm just absolutely fascinating to hear the the summary, especially since. Um, don't know how many people are actually paying attention outside Australia to what's happening there. And I think my big question is, both for reference to Australia, but I think it, whether it has wider significance, is whether we're seeing a possible breakdown of, uh, if you want to call it the traditional two-party system. So, you know, my understanding is, is you pretty much have power being swapped back and forth between liberals or the liberal nationalist coalition and labor. Mm. And that's the way politics is run in Australia. And you've had the, the added, you know, spectacle of internal fights within each of the parties as to who gets to lead them. And that's true. I note, though, however, that – so tell me if this is new. I mean, we clearly have the rise of the Green Party mm. who have a space because of the environment as well as the question of uh, immigration. We have this phenomenon of a, a personalized – third party because you're talking about the lack of charisma mm. you know is it you know nick xenophon 
has a charisma to match his name. That is a hell of a right? name. <laughs> Even when you have a person who, money for that who makes his name as a politician by appearing in front of giraffes and talking about how he's going to fight gambling, which is an interesting issue to, to pin Are those out. connected issues? Or are those You'll have to go to Christology. I'm <laughs> like just beginning to learn about this phenomenon. But, you know, Nick Zenovat, who's, who's just grabbed... Pro-giraffe, so, anti-gambling. Yeah, <laughs> That's pro- the platform that takes you to power. You know, and, and add a few more tick box issues on there, which you can tell us about. And it's like and he captivates at least what it appears to be enough of the vote where there's going to be a few senators and a few House of Representatives that are going to be linked to him. Yeah. So we've got that. My understanding is, is that in other parts of Australia, we've got local candidates running yeah. on local issues that are coming up. First of all, in an Australian context, is that very unusual? But secondly, if it is something that is distinct and is emerging, is it linked to the fact that we have, for example, possibly the breakdown of traditional two-party politics in America with Trumpism uh, surprising us and causing real problems for the Republican Party? And then, as we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, before I went off the rails, about the real issues about where the conservative party goes in this country— with the rise of not only the U.K. Independence Party, but other French groups. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the question about the future of the Labor Party. Are we really talking about a, that we better start preparing in the, in the 21st century, as other countries have experienced, that you're talking about coalition governments with a range of different groups who may come out of niche politics, local politics, or single-issue politics? Uh, first of all, it's not unique. Um, it, it is a phenomenon. It is a historical phenomenon in Australian politics that single-issue parties um, and candidates do have traction, do get traction, and that's the far right um, with parties like One Nation, headed by Pauline Hanson, and the far left in some cases, um, though fewer. But it, it, it's, an indi- it's an indication of the kind of disenchantment that Australian voters have coupled with a kind of uh, apathy. So I'm going... And are not taking themselves seriously to make some sweeping kind of cultural generalisations. There's there's often an attitude, this this kind of person captures a vote of, well, I like him, he doesn't take things too seriously and and he's going to have my vote because he's not a traditional politician, which actually is indicative of of a broader trend if you think of the kind of... Donald Trump phenomenon mm. writ large. The number of politicians who do not take things too seriously is definitely ticking up in the world, I would say that. Yeah, and insofar as that Australia maybe can be seen to lead the way, um, whether it's a breakdown of two-party politics, um, Australia hasn't been a two-party system, I mean a genuine two-party system for a long time. Uh, the, 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 the Labour Party has pulled so far to the right that it's been hard to... Um, distinguish one from the other except on economic on on kind of broad scale like economic policies um so what i think australia is indicative of rather than a breakdown of this two-party kind of system is um an insularity and a lack of a lack of kind of association with what's happening or a lack of care or connection with what's happening in country is very close. I mean, not even Australia-Europe, talking about Australia and, and Southeast Asia. Let me ask one other thing then, because, you know, we, I, I think it's PowerPoint, Australia's insular a place apart, but am I not right that economically, you know, here's a country that has to look to the future of Asia in terms of its trading relationships. Yeah. It has to look, for reasons you eloquently explained, it cannot continue to look to just its own resources and get by. 
So how does that political insularity match up with what would seem to be a need to be connected with other countries, uh, be it within the region or beyond? doesn't match up. It doesn't. That's why there's such a tension. That's why there's... But what there is also is an absence of a real cohesive party with a policy platform that can say we orient towards the world as well as recognising what Australia is or has uh, in, in a coherent way. So there is such a vacuum of, of real political kind of coherence in any of the parties that are able to provide this this kind of policy platform or vision. It doesn't exist. The Labour and the Liberal national parties uh, can't orient themselves that way because they are so deeply embedded with the, uh, with the kind of mining conglomerates um, and heads of, heads of trade and heads of kind of banking. They're, these are too deeply embedded in an old way of thinking. And the Green Party is so... It, it will get seats, but it is deeply fractured internally as well. So, And it's so left positioned, obviously, that it can't provide this kind of this, this alternative rhetoric that, that is future-facing that you talk about. So there is a, a kind of yawning gap in this. And that's part of why there's such a disenfranchisement um, with the younger generations. So last one then. So walk me forward beyond the election. And do you foresee just simply more of the same, no matter who wins this, just more of the same in terms of just perpetually trying to fend off economic crisis with this shadow message that Australia is stronger and trying to fend off political crisis, which the immigration raises? Or do you actually see any prospect that there will be an addressing of these issues in terms of trying to find some type of resolution? Uh, doesn't sound like it's going to come from the main party. So do you find it, it coming from outside those parties? I On the economic issue, I think there'll be a forced confrontation because I suspect that the housing bubble is going to burst uh, relatively soon. And when that does, it, it will precipitate, a, if not a recession, a depression in the Australian economy. So it's going to be Yikes. a big, big, big thing. Yeah. Um, and that is what everyone, that is the emperor's new clothes. Um, it's what everyone is secretly afraid of in Australian politics um, and has no real idea about how to confront because it needs long-term in investment and, and reorientation of policy. So that's one thing. In terms of people that, uh, how the future will look and whether there is an opportunity for positive change, maybe, and I don't know enough. I haven't been in Australia for such a long time. I've seen really heartening uh, figures, key lawyers, for example, Queen's councils, who have become very vocal figures in terms of um, thinking about what Australian multi-ethnicity looks like. And so not parties, but individuals who have public sway, who are saying, hey, we need to think about this. At the same time, what's going to happen in Australia and what I see evolving is an increasing tension and low-level violence between communities in Melbourne and Sydney, for example. Racism, inter-ethnic misunderstandings, uh, lack of and it's it's linked to structural flaws. There's a lack of f public funding for people who are coming into the country to do things like learn English or uh, integrate into the community. There is a lack of awareness of uh, with all of this multicultural or multi ethnic 
awareness that we have in Australia, there's a lack of awareness of how to relate with other cultures and there's a fear that's really intrinsic. So I see it getting worse before it gets better. Happy times. Indeed. It seemed like such a hopeful place for a while. There was a few years there. When it's it beautiful. Seemed, it seemed it like everyone beaches. was moving to Australia no. from this country going, oh, this conservative <laughs> thing, I can't handle it. I'm going to go, go to the land of milk and honey. No uh, way you're selling it to me both now. Both sides like are moving. So both sides are moving. Do you know how many people I've, I've spoken to? First, South Africans moving, and they have a, a white South Africans are moving to Australia. There is a term. Yeah, I was going to say there's going to be a, there is a term be a pretty called door packing for Perth, right, which is when things get too bad in Johannesburg white middle-class South Africans have immigrated en masse to West Australia. Um, and, and white, kind of Anglo-Saxon, this kind of continent. Hmm. Um, how many times I've been approached by, by people here saying, you know what, we're moving to Australia because they have real control over their borders over there. I wish we'd do that here. Yeah. Crikey. Welcome to being Australian. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to pack anytime soon. I think I'm, am I the <laughs> only person in this milk? podcast who's not at least holding out the option yes. of, a, of emigration in light of political trends? There is the possibility for so much better. We can mm. do so much better in that country. We really can. We have such mm. extraordinary collections of people. Um, go visit. Go immigrate. It's a great, it's a great place. Yeah, Beautiful just, beaches, lots of just sharks. Just take care around the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, thank you very much for listening. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. You can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview, where we post episodes of the show as well as article links. We'll stick up the article I did on Donald Trump. We'll stick up uh, Scott's um, Joe Cox article, and we might be able to dig out that uh, broadcast with the tradie, I yes. believe it was. Uh, and fake tradie. Maybe, maybe get the fake tradie up there too so that you can have a an immersive experience with this podcast as you as you follow us on all platforms so please recommend and share widely because uh, that's how people discover podcasts often these days someone else puts it on social media or mentions to someone else that they've discovered it and they think it's great uh, help us find some more people if you like what we do our participants today have been scott lucas where can people find you online scott well everyone including uh, mistress farage uh, johnson and grayling can find me at uh, scott lucas underscore ea on twitter or at uh, the news and analysis website eaworldview.com where a variety of extreme opinions can be found <laughs> clustering um Christala. yes what? What do you want to know? Where can people online? find me? Um, I need more, you know, coherent, instru- close instructions. Adam, you know that. Mm-hmm. They can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, which is spelt Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Mm. I'm Adam Quinn, uh, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, if you want to put a number to it. That's why you should almost certainly follow me, because I do that more than Twitter. But I am also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, if you are insistent on that. Our producer's Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.